Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest is the author of eight novels, including Grimus, Midnight's Children, which came out in 1981, which is one of the great novels of all time. And it's uh, a novel that won not only the Booker Prize, but in 1993 was awarded the Booker of Bookers, <laughs> a category uh, that came up to uh, take a look at what was considered the most notable book of the previous quarter century. His other books include Shame, The Satanic Verses, Harun and the Sea of Stories, which incidentally has been made into a play, and The Berkeley Rep, uh, just up the street, will be performing those as a play uh, later on this fall. The Moor's Last Sigh, and Fury, a book of short stories, East. His nonfiction includes The Jaguar's Smile, Imaginary Homelands, The Wizard of Oz, Mirror Work, and his new book called Step Across This Line, collected nonfiction, 1992 to 2002, published by Random House. I've uh, had the opportunity to meet him a number of times in his life, from an early house in Islington to other interviews, some of them less public than others. And uh, he is out here on a book tour. Will you please welcome Salman Rushdie to West Coast Live. Thank you very much. Well, I'm sorry we couldn't get you to do a duet with uh, John McCutcheon. You really don't want to hear me sing. You know, I mean, I was once, uh, years ago, um, I got invited on stage by U2. Um, and I mean, there was, you know, it's a kind of thing to do to go in front of 85,000 people at Wembley Stadium. It's a little bigger than this audience. Um, but uh, my teenage, my then teenage son was there. And just to kind of tease him, I said that I was going to do a number, you know, with, with the band. Um, the band is not stupid, by the way. They were not asking me to sing. <laughs> or to pick up a guitar. No, but, but my son looked absolutely horrified and said, he said, Dad, please don't sing. He said, if you, if you sing, I'll have to kill myself. <laughs> so, so I didn't sing. You, uh, in one of the essays in the book, you talk about your son and a trip that you make back to, to India. But one of the interesting sides is that uh, although Midnight's Children is dedicated to him, uh, and he has not read any of your books. Yeah, I mean, two of my books are dedicated to him. Haroon and the Sea of Stories is dedicated to him as well. He's read that. I mean, because that was a book written for him when he was 11 years old, and, and you know, and he has always loved it. But he's read the first chapters of a lot of my books. <laughs> and, and on a few occasions, he's read the second chapters. But it doesn't get much beyond page 40. Does, does this discourage you as a writer? <laughs> or encourage you as a parent? Well, it hasn't stopped me yet, <laughs> but it annoys me. Uh, <laughs> Were you, was he holding out for the, uh, the movie adaption of, adaptation of Midnight's Children? Yeah, probably. I think probably he will. He'll come to the show. You know, actually, with Fury, it's one of the few times I've done the audiobook myself because, you know, I hate it with audiobooks where they abridge the book. And it just becomes awful to, to read it because you keep feeling the, the cuts, you know. But with Fury, they agreed to do the book unabridged, and so, so I did it. And he got very pleased with that. He said, okay, give me the tapes, because, you know, I'm always listening to music in, the, in my car, and I'll listen to them. You know, so I gave him the tapes, and he hasn't listened to them. <laughs> <laughs> Too much of having listened to you growing up at times? Who knows? I don't know. 
Yeah, no, I think, you know, children need their parents to be parents and not writers. I mean, I, I, mean, I know other writers whose, uh, whose children don't read their books. I mean, A.S. Byatt, for example, you know, um, who, I mean, her daughter is actually, who's also called Antonia, actually works in the literary world. I mean, she runs uh, reading programs in London for, you know, a sort of big reading program at the South Bank Arts Centre. And so she reads writers for a living, you know, and invites them on, the, on her shows. But she's never read her mother's books um, until um, she, they, they invited A.S. Byatt on the show after, after Possession won the Booker Prize. And then she thought, I better read Possession because, you know, professionally she has to read the book which she's asked the author on for. But, so that's the one she read. She hasn't read anything else. So I think it's, you know, I think it's just that. It's just ch children don't care about your, their parents' job. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the writing of Midnight's Children as a, as a movie script is detailed in your a new collection of essays and, and the difficulties that ensued. But one of, the, uh, one of the aspects of it that struck me was just how dedicated you were to rewriting a piece that you had spent so many years with before. Yeah, I mean, I got dragged into it. I didn't want to originally, um, but then the script that was done sort of just didn't work at all, you know, and by general consensus, not just me. And, and This was going to be a multi-part, almost six-hour production. Yeah, it was going to be a TV miniseries, and, uh, five hours in the end, um, but the script just, just wasn't cutting it, and I think it just wasn't going to get made. Um, and so at some point they said, would I do it? And I think then I just got dragged into it. And then I discovered I was having fun. You know, and I think it's because the book was a long time ago. I think, I mean, you know, Midnight Children is now, what, 21 years old. Um, and I think if it was a book I'd just written, I couldn't have done it, you know. But, but because it was ages ago, I could be quite ruthless with it. Um, and then that miniseries never happened, but now, I mean, you were mentioning that Haroon's being done for the stage, but so is Midnight's Children, because th that miniseries script that I wrote has become the basis of a stage adaptation, which the Royal Shakespeare Company's doing. Uh, and that's going to be in London in January and February, and then we're going to bring it to the United States, uh, because we got a lot of, I must say, absolutely essential uh, co-production investment from, unusually, from two great American universities in Ann Arbor and Columbia. Um, and so we're going to bring it to Ann Arbor for a week, and then we're, there's going to be in New York for a stretch. Um, so that's great. So suddenly I'm a playwright. <laughs> <laughs> how, is, how has your life changed since September 11th? I mean, you're, you're living now in the United States. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, my life has only changed in the way that New York has changed, you know. Um, and, um, I mean, it's, it's, it, it was the only time I've ever seen New York really knocked for six, really kind of off balance and and not feeling like itself, you know? And I mean, now it's, it's, it's regained its balance, and, to, and you know, to a large extent it's regained, you might say, its groove, you know? And I'm very relieved to see that people have started being rude to each other again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I think that's the best sign yet. I mean, there, was, there, was the, there was this weird stuff going on after September 11 when people were going, after you, no after you, you know? And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, how are you? You okay? You know, people say, "No, are you okay?" This is New York, you know. Um, and now they've gone back to, you know, I'm walking here, <laughs> and you think that's good. That's just a sign of the returning spirit of the city. Um, uh, do you, Do you feel safer with all of our security provisions in place here in the United States? No, I think it's just that you feel less safe. You know, and I think that's the difference. Is that the thing that was once around happening to me? You know, I mean, that's happily sort of receded um, almost entirely. And, but now, you know, now it's a much bigger problem. You know? Now it's all of us. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's I mean, really, uh, it's the thing we all have to face in the generation ahead. I think. 
so much of, of uh, the, one of the consequences of the fatwa was was a great deal of celebrity in a way for you, a lot of it unwelcome celebrity. Um, and if it has receded to this degree, uh, you're left with some of the celebrity but without that notoriety in, in part. Um, does that affect your state of sense of well-being? Well, it gets you tables in restaurants. You know, I mean, that's a... A role in Bridget Jones' diary. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, that, was, that was something else. That was just because Helen Fielding, who wrote Bridget Jones' diary, is, is an old pal of mine, and I mean, has been for years and years, um, since she was a completely impoverished journalist. And, and actually, you know how it came about, Bridget Jones? She was so broke, Helen, and all her friends were becoming multimillionaires, writing things like Four Weddings and a Funeral and so on, you know. Um, and nobody could work out Helen, who was smarter than any of them, you know, was completely flat broke. And, and one of her friends was an editor on a British newspaper, uh, the Independent, and just suggested to her as a way of giving her some money, you know, that maybe she'd like to write a weekly column, uh, sort of about herself, about what it was like to be a single person, a single woman in 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 London, and initially it was just supposed to be autobiographical, you know, and then she decided to fictionalize it and made up this character Bridget Jones, and when it started running, they didn't say that Bridget Jones wasn't a real person. You know, it didn't say Bridget Jones's diary by Helen Fielding. They just said Bridget Jones's diary, and it used to appear every week, just a thousand-word column. And you know, the, pop, the, the circulation of the newspaper went through the roof. You know, it just—it became the thing that everybody read first in the newspaper, um, including me. I mean, and, and for a while, it fooled me because I didn't know she was doing it. You know? <laughs> and I thought, who's this girl? You know? But but then, in one of those sort of twists of the literary world, I mean. It, was Julian Barnes who was the one referred to who showed up at the, at the literary party. But in, and, and although he's in the movie, you were clearly the more well-known of the two. I'm afraid, yeah, sorry, Ju sorry Julian. <laughs> um, I mean, he was very, he was okay about it, I hope, you know. But, but uh, no, I, I didn't realize this, but apparently, because all I was told is that they're doing this party scene and they want some real writers there and would you come and kind of make a fool of yourself, you know? And, and I said, sure. And, uh, uh, and what I didn't realize is that the producers had said, we can't have Julian Barnes because nobody will know who he is. And can't we choose somebody whose face is a bit better known? Um, and so I got his, I got his part. You know? <laughs> um, but what was odd about it was that although it was a writer with my name and, you know, obviously my face, um, it was not written by me. You know, it was written by, by Richard Curtis. So it's actually not written in the way that I would speak. Hmm. Um, so it's actual acting. <laughs> <laughs> How would you have done it? Well, I wouldn't have been so nasty, you see. I mean, if there's some publicity girl at a book party making a fool of herself, you know, your, your instinct is not to be grand at her, you know, it's to kind of put her out of her misery. And, you know, I mean, shoot her. <laughs> um, so I kept trying to be nice, you know, in the way that I was talking to her. And they said, no, no, not funny, not funny, you know. And, and it's true that, you know, in fact, the grander I played it, the, the worse her panic felt, you know, and it makes the scene better. So I, was, but I, so I was actually acting against nature, if you like, not in character. I did lots of improvising. I thought, you know, if you're a writer and you've got a movie scene, may as well write yourself some extra dialogue. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> um, so I wrote quite a bit, but they cut out every single bit. <laughs> <laughs> And the thing that was saddest is that there was, that I'm very sad about, there was, in this party scene, there's a, there are bits that aren't in the finished movie, because it was a longer party in the, in the script. And the, they always are. <laughs> yeah. And there was a bit where I'm supposed to, 
Hugh Grant and I were supposed to meet as kind of long-lost friends. I mean, he's the publisher, I'm the writer, and we're supposed to have known each other for ages and not seen each other for a long time. And we're supposed to meet and have a big kind of hug, and then over my shoulder he sees over there in the distance Colin Firth and gets all scared, you know? <laughs> um, that was the scene. Um, and there was one take in which he said, um, he said, in this take, do you mind if I kiss you? And I thought he meant, you know, um, so on the cheeks. So I said, sure, you know, why not? And then he's action, you see, and he went straight for my mouth. Wham! You know? <laughs> <laughs> this, this is, I mean, he's a weird guy, Hugh. <laughs> um, right in the kisser, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. And then they cut it out of the movie. So I thought, you know, this is terrible, my first screen kiss, you know? <laughs> and it's with Hugh Grant. <laughs> And it's left on the cutting room floor. Exactly. So, I mean, you've, this, this odd mix of popular culture and, and uh, political travail I mean, that you've been through. I mean, sometimes you must wake up in the morning and feel your head spinning. But, you know, I was always, it's a, it's, it's a kind of case of, be, you know, that old say, saying, be careful what you wish for. You know, there, there was, I was always a writer who was interested in politics. You know, I always felt that on the one hand, yes, you have your stories and your private universes that you create and offer them, you know. But I also had always felt the inclination to kind of roll up my sleeves and get into the public argument, you know. Um, and uh, gosh, I sure did. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and I, a lot of the times when it was happening, I thought, you know, that's quite enough politics. And maybe for the rest of my life, I'll just, uh, you know, as Voltaire said, cultivate my garden. Um, but it doesn't seem to have worked out like that. Uh, but I, I mean, I, I do think that that was always a part of my makeup. So um, it just got, got, it got magnified. Yeah. The, uh, we're in the United States kind of at the mercy of some of our newspapers, though we can be online. Uh, you know, and read, say, British newspapers. But there are different takes on what's going on in the world. For instance, the, the confrontation that was going on between India and Pakistan. Different takes on it in British newspapers from American newspapers. Is there a difference? Is there something that we in the United States are, are missing from some of these debates? Well, I think in the particular case of India and Pakistan, just I think because in England there's so much more history of connection between England and India and Pakistan, you get a much more nuanced debate because people know more about it, you know, I mean, a lot because there's, you know, 250 years of history, you know, that connects England and India. Um, so it's it's a more familiar space and the subject gets more, more airtime, you know, uh, and as a result, people are better informed. I think one of the problems here is that it's, it's and it's not unnatural that, that the American press tends to concentrate in, in foreign policy terms um, on those areas where it's believed that the United States has an interest you know, or a major interest. So that, for instance, there's much, much more reportage of Middle East politics here uh, in the United States than there is in England. Um, I mean, except, of course, at times of crisis when it happens everywhere. But just, I mean, generally, day by day, you know, the subject of Israel and Palestine is much more foregrounded in the United States than, than elsewhere, because clearly it's believed that American interests apply there. And in India, in India, not so, not so much, you know. I mean, it really helped when Clinton went, you know, because uh, until then, you know, historically in the old days of the Cold War, India had had close relations with the Soviet Union, you know, and that tended to mean that the Americans backed away a little bit. Um, and so after the Cold War, the end of the Soviet Union, I mean, Clinton's visit was a very important thing because I think it was the first moment at which people in India felt that the United States were, you know, friendly uh, towards them. And you know what Clinton was like, he charmed the pants off everybody. You know, he went there and, the, you know. 
Yeah. So to speak. <laughs> and, and, you know, they, the, the, whole, the whole country kind of fell in love with him. And, of course, there were a number of sort of starlets circling. Um, uh, but he, I'm sure he didn't um, do more than look. <laughs> and there are starlets in India, as we know. Yeah, I mean, it's this huge movie industry, which I think now is there's beginning to be a bit of an India wave over here. So people have begun to become aware of this gigantic film industry uh, in a way that they weren't. I mean, you know, there's more movies produced per year in, in what's called Bollywood, the Bombay film industry, uh, than are produced in Hollywood. And there's not only the Bombay film industry, because South India has its own movie industry, you know, in, 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 not in Hindi, but in South Indian language, in Tamil and so on. Um, so it's a gigantic movie industry, and the movie stars there are huge movie stars you know, of a sort that hasn't really been seen in the United States since the great days of the studio system and so on, and, and actually in many ways bigger than that. Mm -hmm. you know? um, they become figures in the culture in the most gigantic way. I mean, recently I saw they had a survey, um, actually in England, of, uh, amongst the Indian community in Britain uh, to ask them who were, you know, the role models, the Indian role models, you know, that they looked up to. And of the top 10 that they published, 85% of the votes went to the person who got the number one slot. And everybody else got 2%, 3%. And she was, of course, the biggest fem female movie star, Aishwarya Rai, who is a big, prominent movie star in Bombay. She got 85% of all the votes. So that's how popular they are. And then uh, there's, in one of your essays, uh, you talk about you're telling your son that the Indian military has never been interested in running for politics, mm -hmm. taking over political things. And yet in Pakistan, you talk about the corruption of the military there. Um, yeah. This has got to be part of the, the problem. Well, it's one of the things that you know, Indian people rightly, in my view, take great pride in. That if you look at the politics of the region, you know, look at the countries all around India, you know, they have military, I mean, look at Burma, you know, uh, there's a junta. Look at Pakistan, there's a military dictator. Um, you know, look at China, that's not exactly what you'd call open democracy, you know, um, and, and, and so on. And so in, in this area, you've got this gigantic country of a billion people, which has, with the exception of two and a half years in the 70s when Mrs. Gandhi tried to become more dictatorial um, and failed, in interestingly, um, apart from that, this has been a, a, an open democracy ever since 1947, and it's remarkable to have, you know, to have a place with, th you know, three times the population of the United States, um, and very, very, very little money. You know, it's easier to be democratic when you're rich. You know, it's 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 much harder when you're poor, um, and yet, you know, it is a democracy. So it's, I mean, it's not a perfect democracy. You know, there's 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 crookery. There's, I mean, a lot of people have complained in recent years of the way in which um, kind of well-known criminals and gang operators tend to get places in Parliament, but then, hey, you know, doesn't that happen everywhere? <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was reading a review of a, of a book called uh, Jihad, Political Trail of Islam by Gilles uh, Keppel. Keppel. You, do you know the book? I do, yeah. His argument is that is it sort of uh, extreme Islamic activity is sort of on the decline in the world, you know, I think he's. I think he's actually got a point. I mean, I, but I think the problem is that it's it's not uniform. You know, there are there are places where it seems to be on the increase, such as unfortunately Saudi Arabia, um, but there are other places where it does seem to have peaked. I mean, you know, ten years ago, uh, when the 
the fundamentalist uh, armies of the FIS and the GIA in Algeria uh, were really in the ascendant. I mean, Algeria was an absolutely terrifying place, um, and people were being killed left, right, and center by the fanatics, and the state was really rocking. Well, that's, that's really changed in Algeria now, and they're, they're really in decline. In Iran, you know, the, the fundamentalists really have lost all sense of legitimacy, and the population kind of hates them. And I mean, they just have to get rid of them, but that's a detail. Uh, what I'm saying is that'll happen. You know, but in, it's interesting to me that Iran was the first place where Islamic radicalism took over the state. And I think it may well be the first place where the tide turns, you know, where people say that's really enough, because they've now noticed that the mullahs essentially have screwed up the country, a place which used to be very wealthy, uh, very cosmopolitan, very modern society, you know, has been sort of dragged, kicking and screaming back into the Middle Ages. And, and, it, and it wants out, you know. I mean, the, the, in Afghanistan, of course, the, the rejoicing about the fall of the Taliban indicates the extent to which people are sick of that stuff, you know. So I do think he's right. He's right in quite a few places. But I think one of the worrying things is the rise of Wahhabi Islam in Saudi Arabia and the way in which the Saudis are propagating that through these, uh, in my view, pernicious religious schools, the madrasas, even some of the United States now, uh, which are all funded by Saudi money and which, uh, which basically propagate a view of the world in which, in which modernity is seen as the enemy. You know, that, that, that's to say there's a kind of an, a more or less fantasticated ideal past that occurred presumably sometime in the seventh century in the deserts of Arabia. Uh, and that's supposed to be the ideal culture that we should all get back to. And the modern world itself is what has to be destroyed to get there. And of course, on the Afghan frontier, the Pakistan side of the Afghan frontier, there's lots of these schools, and that's where the Taliban were trained. You know, so Kashmir, which historically has had a very mild, absolutely non-radical view of Islam, a kind of mysticist, kind of very adulterated with Hinduism kind of Islam, um, now has these madrasas bringing up a generation of kids to think in this much more radical way. And I think, you know, there's Saudi Arabia pretending to be, or, or positioning itself as a kind of ally of the United States and kind of friend of the West. And meanwhile, it's is responsible for, in my view, a more dangerous thing than the Bin Laden gang, you know, which is the training of the next generation um, in, in ideas of fanaticism. One diplomat told me after September 11th that, that, that he believed the attacks were about trying to bring down the House of Saud. Well, I think the long term, I mean, one of, you see, Bin Laden's not so smart in my view. And I think he made a couple of serious miscalculations. I think his, his, his grand design, in my view, was A, that after the attacks, there would be an Islamic jihad, that the Muslim world would rise up in his support. Well, the Muslim world failed to do that. You know, it actually was pretty disgusted with, with what happened in, in many cases. Not in all cases. I mean, we all saw the images of people dancing in the streets. But in many cases, there was a real an, a nausea in the Muslim world. And the, as a result, there's actually begun to be more voices speaking up against terrorism you know, in Muslim countries than there ever used to be. Not enough yet, in my view, but some. You know? Anyway, so he failed to get the jihad that he thought he'd get. And the, I think the second part of his grand design was that he would uh, take over Saudi Arabia. And I mean, the, the, the thing he got right is that, you know, the old king is, is, is not well and so on, and presumably he's not going to live that much longer. And in the rest of the House of Saud, there is certainly one strong faction which is, as it were, of his cast of mind, you know, in terms of the kind of world they want to bring about. I mean, a very radical Islamist faction inside the House of Saud. And 
clearly what he felt is that there could be a power struggle in which you know his gang would come out on top and and he would then in some way be welcomed back to Saudi Arabia in triumph you know as a kind of revolutionary leader um, the miscalculation here is I think if he I mean if he's still alive uh, if he should ever come out of that cave I sort of doubt whether the United States is going to let him proceed to Riyadh in triumph you know so wrong Osama <laughs> The, uh, the other uh, point that, that the author makes uh, is that Britain in the 1990s became kind of a safe haven for Islamic uh, people of, of, of all kinds, both uh, of, of the, uh, the radical end as well as the more secular end, uh, and, and that this was their accommodation that well, we'll let all the Muslims live here in England and we hope peacefully. Well, there's, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's a million or so Muslims in England out of a 60 million population. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a significant minority, but it's a small minority. Um, and of that million, you know, I mean, one would have to say that probably 950,000 are perfectly decent people, you know, who go about their business like anyone else. Uh, but it is true that there is a great deal of radical Islamist activity in England. There's a, there are a lot of mosques which have been taken over by very extreme voices and wh where the mullahs preach, you know, stuff which is pretty scary. And it's also, it has been suggested and kind of in the days when I knew more about intelligence material than I now know, it was clear that there were some very shady characters indeed um, who were being permitted to enter and exit from Britain and often with the knowledge of British intelligence. Um, who let them come and go because they felt it was better to be watching them and know what they were up to than to arrest them. So, um, I mean, this was a point of view I did not share um, for obvious personal reasons. In, in your uh, collection of essays here, in, in one of your uh, uh, sections, there's a, where is it? it's the, uh, you have sections devoted to times of, of the year. Uh, in your travels, and I, of course, very carefully mark this here. It was in April of that year, and it's you arriving in India and taking a look at this country, and it once again reminded me of how much, th this is my copy in English, right? Yeah, here it is. Yeah, um, I, I wonder if you could uh, just you read the first two paragraphs here from Saturday, April 8th. India doesn't stand on ceremony and rushes in from every direction, thrusting me into the middle of its unending argument, clamoring for my total attention, as it always did. Buy chili cockroach traps, drink hello mineral water, speed thrills but kills, shout the billboards. There are new kinds of messages too, enroll for Oracle 81, graduate with Java as well. And as proof that the long protectionist years are over, Coca-Cola is back with a vengeance. When I was last year, it was banned, leaving the field clear for the disgusting local imitations, camper cola, and thumbs up. Now there's a red Coke ad every hundred yards or so. Coke's slogan of the moment is written in Hindi, transliterated into Roman script, Jo Chaho Hojai, which could be translated literally as, whatever you desire, let it come to pass. <laughs> Actually, why don't you read the, right, right through to there? I think that would be a good point. All right. Uh, I choose to think of this as a blessing. Horn, please, demand the signs on the backs of the one million trucks blocking the road. All the other trucks, cars, bikes, motor scooters, taxis, and fat-fat auto rickshaws enthusiastically respond, 
welcoming Zafar, that's my son, and me to town with an energetic rendition of the traditional symphony of the Indian street. Wait for side, sorry, bye-bye, fatter boy. The news is, this is all signs on the buses. The news is just as cacophonous. Between India and Pakistan, as usual, acrimony reigns. Pakistan's ex-Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif has just been sentenced to life imprisonment after what looked very like a show trial stage managed by the latest military strongman to seize power, General Parvez Musharraf. India's army of, of vociferous commentators linking this story to the unveiling by Pakistan of a new missile, the Shaheen II, warned darkly of the worsening relations between the two countries. A politician from the Bharatiya Janata Party, or BJP, accuses Imam Bukhari of the, the main Delhi mosque of seditious utterances for some allegedly pro-Pakistani, anti-Indian statements. Plus ça change, tempers as ever run high. Inevitably, Bill Clinton, on his recent visit to the subcontinent, was drawn into these old antagonisms. From an Indian point of view, he said most of the right things. In particular, his toughness towards Pakistan, its dictatorship, its nuclear bomb, its illiberalism, won him many friends, and this after many years during which Indians were convinced that the basis of American foreign policy in the region was, in Dr. Kissinger's phrase, to tilt towards Pakistan. India is, on the whole, basking in the afterglow of the Clinton visit when I arrive. The roseate old charmer has done it again. Um, Bombay's, Bombay's movie world is agog. Hindustani Hearts, reports a showbiz magazine in the city's inimitable prose style, went bonkers over the granddaddy of Uncle Sam. <laughs> uh, a starlet, Suman Ranganathan, variously described as a sexy babe and, and apni sizzling mirchi, that is our very own sizzling hot chili, um, is much taken by Big Bill, who is, she declares, amazing, approachable, and someone who knows the pulse of the people. <laughs> um, in India, as my friend, the distinguished art critic Geeta Kapoor reminds me, people have very rarely been bothered by politicians' private lives. One very senior BJP leader is known to have kept a mistress for years without it affecting his career in the slightest. Indians, therefore, view the Lewinsky scandal with bemused puzzlement. If various hot chilies choose to sizzle at the world's most powerful man, who could be surprised? <laughs> Salman Rushdie, reading from Step Across This Line, one of these essays. There's a, uh, you, you also have a, a poem with apologies to uh, Dr. Zeus about the Grinch, and that line about hot sizzling chilies reminded me of sort of the rhythm that you found in Dr. Zeus to uh, describe uh, the Grinch who stole Voteville. That's right. Uh, Yes, how th about the nasty Veep creep. You know. Yeah, it's called How the Grinch Stole America. I, um, I wrote it as a, as a verse for the inauguration, and, uh, and, and I, you know, for some reason they didn't use it. <laughs> it, it says uh, there's a point at which he gets, uh, he gets upset, um, the Grinch, um, the, who becomes president, you know, um, because he, he realizes that, he says, what was a ballot? says, were they, were they uh, was it silver or gold? He says, were, were, they, were they counting up treasure, a fortune untold? No, he says, just some dumb punch cards. You know? They were counting up holes. Oh, the holes, yes, the holes. Oh, the holes, 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 holes. You know, the whole thing depended on circles of air. Not to, not to mention the half holes um, and, you know, and the holes that weren't there. <laughs> um, but wanted to be there and thought that was fair. <laughs> <laughs>
Salman Dushri uh, reciting by memory from one of the poems, which covers uh, uh, 10 years of a most extraordinary life. And uh, uh, so there'll be another volume uh, we look forward to in 2012 of essays. Yeah. I mean, it takes me about 10 years to write a book of nonfiction. <laughs> there was Imaginary Homelands was 81 to 91, and this is 92 to 2002, so I guess 2003 to 2013, by when I'll be 66. Is there a, uh, a, a novel you're working on at the moment you want to say a word about? Yeah, there is a novel I'm working on at the moment, and no, I don't want to say a word about it. <laughs> <laughs> Salman Rushdie, his book is uh, published by Random House. Thank you very much for being here on West Coast Live. Thanks, Serge. Thank you. Also author of Fury, Midnight's Children, Shame. Jaguar Smile, and again, a collection of his uh, stories will be produced by the Berkeley Rep later in the year. Thanks very much. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.